Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. In this episode, we hear from Charles Plant, who is a former founder, VC, banker, and now a PhD candidate in economics. A key focus for him is the Narwhal Project, or the study of Canadian unicorns as defined by a billion dollar plus valuation and world-class status. The question of what it takes to build a billion dollar organization has led Charles to research and publish numerous studies on his findings. What we get in this episode is a glimpse into the algorithms of growth. In other words, the capital it takes and areas you need to spend that money to achieve the growth targets that result in a billion dollar plus organization. Now we meander a bit in our discussion, but where we end up oftentimes led me to have these light bulb moments saying, man, I wish I knew this years ago. And even if you're not in the game of building a billion dollar VC backed organization, the insights Charles shares with us are game changing. The discussion will be illuminating for anyone thinking they may want to pitch a VC, and it will also open your eyes to their expectations and other avenues to finance growth. I highly encourage you to take notes on this one. And also, you can visit Charles' work at narwhalproject.org. Enjoy the show. On the line, I have Charles Plant. Uh, Charles, you've been a, a co-founder, an officer, a director, um, an investor. Uh, you know, the list goes on in several dozen companies. You've worked in venture capital. You've been an investment banker, a corporate banker, and an author. Uh, you've got an MBA in marketing. Uh, you're a chartered accountant, and you're now doing a PhD in economics. You're a very busy individual. Thanks. It really sounds like I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I, 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 I guess I get bored doing things and try something else. Yeah. It's not well, very scattered. What, what a path. And there's, there's a ton of, of uh, experience here. So what, what I usually like to do, I mean, from just that as a brief intro, it would be great to get some of your history there and what's weaving all of these together and then get into some of your major focuses. Well, I, I guess what weaves it all together is I um, co-founded a software company over 30 years ago and spent 15 years as CEO of that and uh, developing that business. And, you know, when you start a software company in the 80s, nobody knew what they were doing. It was, uh, uh, I think you know, people would ask me, what? What is it? What's a software company? Why are you doing that? And uh, so there wasn't anywhere to go to figure out how do you start a software company. The organizations that exist now that support the development of technology companies didn't exist. So we had to figure it out ourselves. I spent a long time trying to figure out how do you develop a, a software business? And we did okay. We, uh, we created a business that in the last five years grew consistently at about 30% a year and was profitable every year. And that really wasn't enough though, because what I didn't learn was how to grow a world-class company. And it remained this black box of, you know, what, what does it take to create um, um, a unicorn? What does it take to create something that everybody knows and goes public, etc.? And so I struggled with that and looked around and tried working with a whole bunch of different companies in Canada uh, as a result of that and some in the U.S. as well. And yet I didn't manage to connect and work for a company that had those enormous results. I, never, I, never, I was never with one. And along the way, in, in order to get different perspectives on the issue, I started teaching, I started working as a venture capitalist, I worked as an investment banker, all of those things was, well, maybe I can figure out this way, uh, how you create huge world-class companies. But uh, about 15 years ago, I said, well, I, I'm, I'm not successful at 
at figuring out how to do it myself, I might as well go and do some research. And so a lot of my time has been spent over the last many years, and especially over the last four years, doing research into what it takes to create a world-class company, and specifically what Canada is doing incorrectly in the creation of world-class companies. So that's what ties it all together, is this issue of how do you create something that's world-class, unicorn status, goes public, etc. So, so with that, in, in all the research you've done and, and the research I did on you before to this podcast, your focus is there on identifying what it takes to build that world-class company. And so, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but some definition to that world-class is the equivalent of a, a software unicorn, a term that we throw around loosely. But now you've coined the, the Canadian version, a narwhal. Uh, can you explain what, you know, the parameters of that? What's meant by a unicorn or a narwhal? Well, you know, to be world-class, there's one stage beyond that, which is public company. To be truly world-class, you have to be a public company and, you know, well-known, etc. Eventually, you run out of funding from private sources and you need to return capital, so you go public. But the stage before that is is the unicorn stage. And unicorns are effectively, as most of the audience probably knows, private companies worth a valuation of more than a billion dollars. And so Brent Holiday, who you talked to on another podcast, had termed the the, uh, coined the term narwhal to apply to Canadian companies, but he was meeting the billion dollar club, uni- Canadian unicorns. But there aren't any of those, really. There's one. Uh, Kick Interactive is the only unicorn we've got right now. So uh, I'm sitting around looking at um, Brent's original things and thinking, well, you know, it's a great term. And I talked to him and I said, can I borrow the term narwhal? And he was good enough to, to let me use it to apply to Canadian companies that are not yet unicorns, really, the ones that are developing, because there was nobody keeping track of the Canadian companies that have the potential to become unicorns. So a narwhal is technically a Canadian company with high growth potential um, that has received significant amounts of venture capital. And there is a technical definition for what a narwhal is, and it's the top 50 companies in terms of their financial velocity. And that's a, a measure that I created that um, just to look at how companies were doing compared to other companies. So, so that, yeah, that becomes part of this Narwhal project. And the, and the financial velocity, which is a formula you've identified, is, is something that I thought was really interesting. Uh, and I think it's, it's going to frame up, uh, I mean, really the, the rest of our discussion here, because when you look back at it, all of your research has, has brought you to uh, a few, how do you say, levers, if you will, that can yeah. lead to becoming world-class, becoming a narwhal, becoming a unicorn. So, so what are those? And, and in, in maybe a little higher level, what's the, the narwhal project? And, uh, and then what's that, how does that formula fit in? So let, let's look first at perhaps, uh, as you said, the narwhal project. That's the, the, the term that I'm using to coin all of this research. And we're trying to identify the factors that create world-class companies and trying to figure out what the barriers are in certain places to the creation of world-class companies and what it takes to scale. So it's, it's really an economical look at the function of scaling. And a lot of people, there are all sorts of different perspectives on how to scale. So some of the scaling, some of the perspectives are, you know, with regard to customer or marketing or um, talent development, those things. I'm looking at the economics, the financing of scaling and what it takes and the levers that you can apply. So all of the research that I'm doing connects in with that uh, issue. And the way I identify companies that are scaling successfully is this measure of financial velocity. So financial velocity is the rate of acquisition of capital over time. And it's simply the amount of capital you've acquired divided by the number of years you've been in existence. So if you've acquired $100 million worth of capital and you've been in business five years, your financial velocity is 20 or thereabouts. If you're in business for two years and you've acquired $10 million capital, your financial velocity is five. And so what I noticed is that the companies that go public have a really high financial velocity. And the ones that uh, become unicorns have a similar high financial velocity. So I said, let's apply that to the Canadian companies to determine who has the potential at an earlier age to become uh, a unicorn and, and go public by measuring the financial velocity. 
the great thing about that formula is it doesn't matter how old you are, you can still apply it. So, you know, growth rates are really high when you're when you're young because it's related to a prior year and it's not a good measurement. But financial velocity actually works as a measurement all the way along. You can find a company that's two years old and compare it to a company that's 20 years old based upon this velocity because that is a sort of underpinning that is your rate of growth uh, mm-hmm. because eventually capital has to finance fuel that growth. And we're measuring the growth fueled by capital. So I, as part of this, uh, what I was reading, and, and I, I definitely, for the listeners here, um, I'll put up these links to, to the, in the show notes to some of the research you've done. But one of these, uh, one of these reports you've put together has a summary of, of fundamentally this formula. And I'm going to read it out, and then we can discuss it. But um, So the amount of capital you raise dictates how much you can incur in losses which then fuels the, the spending on marketing and sales in order to increase your growth or effectively your scale. Yep. And then the rate at which you'll then generate revenue is a multiple in order to return, uh, return wealth back to investors or return the, the uh, capital back to, to investors. So, so yep. this formula together is, is what you're seeing and, and ties into the companies both Canadian and U.S. that have had this success. Yeah, I'm calling this an algorithm for growth. An algorithm for growth. It's it's awesome. So, yeah. how, how, where, where else can we go with this? How can we apply this? Well, look at the end result that you're wanting, and then you know, world class companies have high valuation. Um, that valuation is fundamentally dependent on growth. And in fact, there's stuff that I've written, and you can see some of the research that shows in public markets the tie-in between growth and um, and your valuation. And the reason that works is that most high, fast-growing companies lose money, and so you can't use your traditional valuation metrics from a financial perspective. You've got to use other, and so people turn to revenue, and they say, okay, well, if you got a billion-dollar company in revenue, and you compare it to another billion-dollar company. There's a difference between the two, and that difference is growth. The faster your growth rate, the more you're going to be worth in the future. Therefore, the more that you're worth now. So growth is one way of saying, you know, the, the more you have, the better you're going to be in the future, and therefore, we'll discount that back, and we'll apply a multiple on growth to get your valuation. So you look at Shopify, which went public and had 100% growth. Their revenue multiple was 20 times for valuation sake. So $100 million worth of revenue is worth $2 billion in the marketplace because they're worth 20 times. If they've been growing 50%, it would have been lower than that. And there's a really high degree of correlation, and we're getting really technical here, and hopefully um, people can follow this in the writing. But there's a high degree of correlation between your growth rate and your revenue multiple, which means that the only thing that matters to become a huge world-class company is your growth rate. Mm. It is the thing that matters more than anything else. So the question then is, how do you generate growth? And wh- what are the various factors that lead to that creation of growth? So I've done more research into that. And this is where you get down into the, the, the fact that capital is really what's driving growth. And, and you have to be in a huge market. You can't grow in a small market. You can't grow in a slow-moving market. So you have to be in a big market like uh, somebody like Uber. I mean, Uber is going after the taxi business and other forms of transportation that people are already spending money on. So that if you're in that large market, the only thing that's standing in your way is how fast you can grow Mm. because the market's there for the taking. So then you say, okay, what is it that fuels that growth? And it's capital. And the The more capital you do sales and marketing, which drive that top line. Yeah, absolutely. And and so people look at the engineering and the IP and everything. Those are all nice. But fundamentally, if you're not spending money on uh, driving growth through spending on sales and marketing, you're not going to get the growth. If you don't get the growth, you're not going to get the valuation. You're not going to get the interest from investors. And so it all comes down to how fast you can grow by applying money to sales and marketing, which requires huge losses, Mm -hmm. which means you need lots of capital. So it all works together in this neat little way. So then then what we can look at here, I mean... from, from our earlier discussion, when we talk about a narwhal or we talk about a unicorn, you've got a formula that, that, that can lead you there, which will take you know, tremendous losses to get you up there with, with the growth that will come. And then 
it's up to the markets to once you become a publicly listed company to 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 really see if if you've got a business model that's going to stand the test of time. And I mean, you can yeah. compare Shopify to uh, I think a, a pending um, and probably an interesting IPO to to come would be WeWork. Uh, yeah, I haven't I haven't looked at their stats yet. I keep meaning to do that. Okay. Well, I mean, just at, at a high level, everything, you know, you read the headlines and basically people are saying that this, this is a, um, a heavily capitalized business, which doesn't have a business model. And is it, is this a case where they've raised hundreds of millions of dollars? They've had a high, um, capital velocity, but are ultimately barreling towards a public listing where they're going to show that they don't have a sustainable business model. Well, we don't know if they have got one or not because what I refer to as unit economics, which is the uh, behind it all, what your customer's worth in the long run to you. If you've got good unit economics, then you can apply capital for high growth. The question is, for instance, people are wondering now whether Uber has the right unit economics. And so behind it, you go public with these high growth and enormous losses. That really doesn't matter. As long as the you can, at some point in time, cut down on your sales and marketing so that your growth is slower and your unit economics means that you're profitable for every customer or for most of the customers, then eventually you'll be profitable and you'll have a different economics um, applied to your valuation. And you'll, and so you'll, start, you'll, excuse me, you'll start to get away from metrics of, of uh, as a multiple of revenue and start looking at profitability. Yeah, you'll get profit measures. You remember Amazon went public and said, we're losing money and we, never don't, we don't know when we'll stop. Mm, uh, yeah, that's and, a uh, and famous we, story. And we don't, yeah, we don't know when we'll be profitable. They had unit economics that made it, made it possible for them to become profitable. Other companies like Uber, there's a question whether the unit economics really work because they relied on cost cutting or price cutting to get into the marketplace, and that harms them in the long run, potentially. Hmm. We don't know, because you can't see from public disclosure what the unit economics are. So I, I want to I just uh, jump on to that point. With, from your experience as an investment banker and a, and a corporate banker, and then also in the world of, of venture capital, if a CEO is to come to you or a founder is to come to you, how should they explain that? I mean, it's, it's, it's easy to look at Jeff Bezos and say, well, he went in and said, we're, never gonna, we're not going to be profitable for a very long time, but look at my unit economics. How, how should a company approach uh, a capital raising situation where they have to explain that they're not going to be profitable for a very long time? Well, uh, there are three things that you've really got to show before you start throwing huge amounts of money at scaling. First is you've got to show a large potential market. Second thing is you've got to show good product market fit, and that means you, your, your customers would die without you. And the third thing is this unit economics, and those are all the formulas that you see coming around, which are customer cost of acquisition, long time, a lifetime value of a customer. Um, and if you can track, as you're doing your experiments and figuring out your, your unit economics and show that, you know, Acquiring a customer leads to this long-term value. Say, let's say it costs us $100 to get a customer and they're worth $500 a year for the next 10 years because of uh, churn rate. Then that formula shows the application of sales and marketing results in positive returns to the company over time. Now, there was a whole industry that failed because of lack of unit economics, and that was the competitive local exchange carriers or long-distance carriers in the early 2000s, is that they were going after the next lowest price in the marketplace, and so the unit economics didn't work. Their growth took off like mad, but every customer cost them money. It didn't actually bring them money. Hmm. So when you have a situation where your customer's costing you money just to get a customer, it's not worth it. And this is where Uber and WeWork might be, uh, might be slightly different because Uber, you don't have the same stickiness that WeWork has because WeWork um, is based on long-term uh, relationships with people. They're, they're in your space and they're there for a long time, whereas it's, it's, it's uh, a slightly different dynamic with Uber. So you might have better unit economics, which means it's worthwhile acquiring customers because the minute you stop acquisition, you're profitable. Right, right, right. You, you you keep on investing and taking pole position, number one spot, until you have a yeah. 
a very uh, defensible position, and then you can turn turn yourself into more of a of a profit generating entity. I, yeah, and and that's the key is is explaining that dynamic, explaining the unit economics to the potential investors to show them. Yeah, the minute we stop marketing, if we run out of money sales and for sales and marketing to grow the customer base, we'll be profitable the next day because here here's how the uh, the numbers work. Gotcha. And now, you know, when I, when I'm thinking about this and if I was to apply this in raising money, I can definitely see that you have your pitch and that that's, you have to have an emotional, emotional hook to that pitch and what you're explaining, talking about the value proposition and the problem you're solving, but then backing it up with these, the effectively formulas of showing your, your cost of economics and what is your unit, uh, your unit economics there. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, each of these is a different perspective on scaling world-class companies, the pitch, and the emotional connection, connection with your customers, all of that. But unfortunately, the whole economics and, and financial side, and, and it's both economics and finance, doesn't get uh, enough airplay. People don't spend mm-hmm. enough time understanding it and understanding the interrelationship of all the various elements of it that go together to create tremendous growth, which then creates tremendous valuation. And what I'm trying to do with the Narwhal Project is to connect all those dots. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's why, I w- well, I was very happy that, that um, uh, Brent mentioned that I, we should be speaking and that we're on the podcast now because uh, it, it is, you get a lot of, there's a lot of play around how sexy your pitch deck can be, how sexy, you know, you can be emotionally when you, when you deliver your message. But there's very little information on what are the numbers behind uh, behind yeah. a good deal, and and so the work you're doing here is um, oh, it's, I'm I'm so happy I found it and I, and I'm uh, keen to link to it for everybody to to dig in there. Yeah. Well, now, also if you if you look at the public markets, is the public markets don't care what your pitch deck looks like. They don't care about the emotional connection. All they care about is the financial return. Mm-hmm. And that's so the ultimate, the ultimate arbiter of what you've created is going to be all on numbers. Yeah. And I so you've yeah. got to embed those numbers from the very beginning. And so all of this, it's nice and fuzzy. Well, they're just playing on the fact that VCs like to have warm fuzzies when they're investing as well as the, the numbers. But the focus on the numbers from the very beginning is really essential because in the ultimate, in the end, that's the only way people are going to look at you. Is what numbers you've created, right? Now, I want to ask though: is um, it, with the work you've done here, because I think you, you know you have to create warm and fuzzies for for anybody you're looking to pitch to. Uh, yep. And and it's wonderful to have it backed by some some numbers that and that really would show a a differentiation in you as an entrepreneur uh, as well as a sophistication um, that I think would be welcomed. But have you ever considered uh, applying? the research you're doing to the world of public venture capital. So when we look at companies listed on the TSXV and the CSE from capital formation side. Uh, I've done some research on it, but the last time I did it was something like 10 years ago. And I touched on it a couple of years ago when I was looking at accounting practices and and what people are doing there. And um, my experience was, that it's, it mimics the world of venture capital extremely well in that there are a whole bunch of them that get initial capital that actually don't go anywhere. Mm. The hard part is to figure out the ones that are actually going somewhere. But when I see them and when I've seen them um, in Canada is they're not getting enough capital still. And this is the problem. It, it, it's, it's interesting because it mirrors the venture capital world is that we seem in Canada to be afraid of applying large amounts of capital to fuel the growth of these companies. And as a result, they sort of limp along. Uh, their, their growth is okay. They might be growing 20, 25% a year, but they don't achieve the stratospheric growth rates that are essential to become a world-class company, which is starting at about 60% and more likely right. 100% a year when they're smaller. Right. And so, so actually, that, that brings us back more into the, to the Narwhal Project and your focus on the, the state of... of capitalization in Canada and when it comes yeah. to, to these projects. So, so what are some of the figures there? And, and I can see how you would apply them or they could apply to the public venture capital world as well. But when you talk about that undercapitalization, what are we, what are we seeing out there? What's happening? Well, 
when you look at it, it's, it's really interesting because I've got a paper coming out this month on um, on where the capital's coming from, how it's being used. And fundamentally, people know that if you're capitalized by a Canadian VC, you're going to receive less money than you will if you're capitalized by, let's say, an American VC. So the, the, this is what's happening in the venture capital world is that the structure of Canadian venture capital funds is such that they have to spread their return between, you know, spread the risk between multiple numbers of companies. And because of that, they're small fund, because they're small funds, they can't allocate enough in any one individual company to fuel the growth to world class levels efficiently. So we have, uh, I think, uh, 77 venture capitalists active in Canada and a thousand in the U.S., but the U.S. invests 20 times as much money. So on average, they've got more than twice as much capital. And this is another part of this algorithm is how it works in the venture capital side. And that applies then to the venture exchange. And, and when you look at companies that have been, um, that have gone public only in Canada versus companies that have gone public, let's say on NASDAQ eventually, they don't get the amounts of capital in Canada that they would if they went public on NASDAQ. And as a result, they suffer financially from it. They don't achieve the growth rates that they would if they'd been financed south of the border. And when you don't achieve those growth rates, you don't get the valuation. And that has two effects because once you're public, and I, I, I'm going to go on here forever if you let me. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Um, <laughs> it once you're public, you need, you need currency. And that currency allows you to buy other companies. And you only get that by having a high growth rate. So if you're undercapitalized, you don't get the high growth rate. You don't get the currency to acquire other companies, which means it cripples your growth rate again. So we end up orphaning companies. And it's, hmm. it's really sad with high potential companies are, are restricted from their ability to get capital because of where they're getting the capital. We, um, and, and so, and, and you know, the, you know, the market, the, the, uh, marijuana market. Yeah. Like Where's the capital coming for, for Canadian companies It's coming out of the U S yeah, well, that's, that's what I was saying. And, and I guess, you know, I'm a big believer, uh, in the world of public venture capital and perhaps it's because it's where I, you know, I, I cut my teeth and um, have have learned the trade, if you will. But I'm seeing it and, and I'm very, uh, you know, I find it uplifting to see a lot more foreign capital coming in. For example, there's companies from Israel who are doing or quite actively listing on the TSX venture. Um, you're, you're starting to see a lot more public interest uh, or international interest, international capital coming into the, to the public markets on the venture side. Yeah. And to me, I think that's perhaps... Uh, uh, it's it's countering the fact that there is a limited amount of capital there, and um, I mean, ideally, the, it's it's opening up the the pools in which these listed companies can start to tap into from the world of public VC. W what are your thoughts on that? Well, and this is happening in the private world as well. That the foreigners uh, are actually discovering that good technology comes out of Canada and are investing in it. And so I, I'm interested to hear that, you're, that it's happening in public markets at the same time. Because the funny thing is, Canada, in terms of private markets, is third in the world for the amount of venture capital it's invested per year. And so you'd think hmm. we'd be doing better. I mean, we're behind only U.S. and China. Right. We're, we're ahead of England, France, Germany, Israel, all those countries. It's, it's really quite fascinating. Um, so, you know, the fact that it's coming into public markets as well, and, and you, you've You've seeded an interest here, and I think I'll do a paper next year on um, public venture capital and see where that goes, because it'll oh, be interesting awesome. to see. Yeah, that's, uh, well, hey, if, um, we'll, we'll keep our eyes out for that, because that's definitely part of the yeah. audience here is in that world. And uh, let me know, there's definitely some good people that I would be more than happy to extend it, invites to. They could speak in depth about it. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's exciting. Now, um, where to go from this? Uh, when we when we talk about creating billion dollar companies, uh, and we talk about Canada in some degree falling behind, and, and due to the amount of capital, what I also read in one of your papers though was that we're we're fourth, uh, or what? Excuse me. Now now the number skips my mind. But when it comes down to it, the amount of exits we have uh, as a country is is remarkable. Can you explain that in compared to becoming world class and what that means for Canada? Well, this this is our you know, exits via M and A, not exits yes. via IPO, and that's a funny one. And and I'm I'm started a project to look at that, 
by uh, every every month I go in and look at all the companies that were sold in that month, and then I go into their stats to see how well they've done and and trying to figure out why they're getting uh, they're being sold. And the the uh, so I've done this for about six or eight months now, and I've I've got the results of about sixty or so companies. Yeah, I was surprised years ago to find that we rank um, rank so highly in the number of exits through mergers and acquisitions. And so I've been trying to figure out what it is. And the, the old line is that there isn't enough venture capital. So everybody seems to say, well, there isn't enough venture capital in Canada. And because of that, companies have to sell before their, uh, before the best before date. And that's actually not the case. And what I'm seeing is that, um, Number one, there is enough venture capital because if you have a growth rate that's above 60%, you have no problem raising money anywhere in the world. Uh, you know, I've, I've worked in uh, Columbia for the last five years, and uh, that's the country, not the university. Mm. And they've got two unicorns. And they used to tell me, oh, no, we don't have venture capital here. We'll never succeed. And I used to say, no, you just don't have good companies here. The minute you get good companies, you'll get venture capital and you'll be successful. And they have twice as many unicorns. The country of Colombia has twice as many unicorns as Canada. No kidding. So, you know, no, no kidding. Indonesia's got four and Israel's got seven and UK has 20. The UK has less venture capital in Canada. They've got 20 unicorns. So um, where was I going with this? The, well, so uh, that, that ties into to Canadian companies exiting earlier. I mean, just being gobbled oh, yeah. up by US yeah. or others. Well, and the fact is, when I'm looking at these companies, what I'm not seeing is tremendous growth rates. And they're being gobbled up, not because they're successful. It's because they've run out of runway. They have growth rates that are uh, okay, but not enough to warrant late-stage venture capital. Hmm. So their growth rates might be 20 to 30% a year, but late-stage venture capital wants at least 40, if not 60% growth a year, because their formula doesn't work for providing it at low, low growth rates because valuation is tied to growth. So we, we start out a company, and this was an interesting piece of research that I did that I've redone more recently, is I looked at all the companies that were founded in the year 2008, and I didn't know beforehand and discovered through the research that the amount of, of capital you get in your first raise is highly correlated to the amount that you raise in total over time. And I scratched my head and said, why is this? I mean, the companies that raised more in their first raise raised much more over time and were also more likely to the ones to IPO. So if you look at uh, from the class of 88, uh, sorry, uh, from the class of uh, 2008, there were uh, 600 companies. So I divide them into quartiles, about 10 IPOs. And if you look at the top quartile in fundraising in the first fund, in the first raise, Seven out of 10 of those uh, IPOs came from that group. So there's a high degree of, and there's a greater than uh, 0.5 correlation between the amount they raised in the first race and the amount they raised in total. So here's what's happening is you start off in Canada, and if you've got, if you're in a really good market, there are going to be at least three other people in the world that have discovered that really good market at that same time. One of them will probably be at least in the U.S., if not two. So you start out in Canada, you raise a million or two million dollars, and somebody in the U.S. says, oh, that's a really good idea. I'm going to put five to six million dollars on that in, in that company. Over the next 18 months, because you raise money about once every 18 months as it goes, you're going to be able to get to a certain point with one to two million dollars. What if you have six to ten million dollars? Where are you going to get to? You're going to get a lot farther. Fundamentally, the R&D costs a bit less in Canada than it does in the U.S., but you've got lots more money to spend in sales and marketing if you've got 6 to $10 million than if you've got $1 to $2 million. And when I did that calculation at, at one point in time, I found that U.S. finance companies have more than six times as much money to spend on sales and marketing than the Canadian companies. So who's going to grow faster? The mm -hmm. one... One, you know, with a little amount to spend on sales and marketing, or one has six times as much. So another few factors I found is that U.S. companies tend to spend as much on sales and marketing from the very minute they start as they do in R and D, and later ramp that up to more than two times spending on marketing and sales versus R and D. Hmm. Canada, we don't start marketing and sales till we've done our R and D. 
we take the million to two, we spend it on our R&D because you have to. You have to have the product to go into the market. Whether it's a minimum viable product or not, you still need the same, basically the same amount of money in the U.S. and Canada, maybe a little less here. So you spend it on on research and development. You don't spend it on sales marketing. You go to the market and you go out there. And I've worked with companies that have done this. And it's so frustrating. So you go to the market and wonder why nobody's buying. And I say, well, you haven't spent any money on sales and marketing. And they say, well, we've got a great product. And I go, well, it's not enough. So in essence, uh, so blowing the, all the money on creating a great product which, without taking to market to really start to see the yeah. growth rates, which will lead to the next round. Yeah. And, and so you, and the next round comes along and the investors look at you and go, well, you haven't grown very much. The U.S. are looking and going, hey, you've done some great growth. We're going to give you $20 million this time. And the Canadians go, okay, you get five. Hmm. And that same pattern occurs across the country. And you can look at companies in the U.S. versus other companies in the U.S. and see the same pattern. It's, it's not a country thing. It's just we do it, happen to be, do it more. But the fundamental fact is that if you're starting a business, somebody else is going to be starting one that's directly competitive at the same point in time, unless you're basing your business on IP and you're in the med device or, or pharmaceuticals or something like that. So it's a race to the customer. And the person with the most money will win the race to the customer. So the more you raise in your first round, the more you'll get and the farther you'll get. And so, you know, and I did this stat almost 15 years ago and, and what, what it would take an American company six to seven years to do, it takes a Canadian company 10 years to do. So when you look at the numbers and you say, why do we have so many M&A transactions? Well, we've got a lot of venture capital. And with a lot of venture capital, we create a lot of companies that grow slowly and eventually they don't get more capital. When they don't get more capital, they have to be sold because it, it, you know it, it takes us ten years to get to where they get in the U.S. in six to seven years. Well, in ten years, the VC needs out. Mm-hmm. VC needs to sell that item from his or her portfolio, and as a result, it's that you know there isn't more capital sitting around waiting within the original um, financier. So it's not going to so come from somebody new. The, 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 the VCs are effectively going to force or facilitate an exit. Yeah, they have and to. By that time, they, they have control of the board with the amount of capital that would come in. Yeah. Yeah. Now, this has been happening for, um, you know, since the beginning of time in Canada. And if, if I go back, because I go back 30 years in the marketplace, this, this is continuing to be the case. The whole group of venture capitals that came out of the 90s that got financed in the 80s, 90s, grew up were basically eliminated in Canada in 2008. Uh, there are very few of them left. A whole new crop has come in. The situation is better. The, the crop before 2008 had negative growth, had negative rates of return, like a minus 1% rate of return for all the VC funds. Nowadays, we've increased that rate of return. We are p- applying more capital, but we haven't seen the exits because it's only, it's only about 10 years into that process. And so now we should see what the real results are. We're going to start seeing the fruit coming through. Yeah. Now, th- this is not just a Canadian issue. This is an American issue and a British issue and a French issue as well, because you can see the same pattern occurring in different places in different countries, is that the ones that get little amounts of capital to start with are growing more slowly and as a result are getting sold. So, so understanding that, and we talk about, you know, let's... Let's just maybe make an assumption of a general market that's that's large enough to to show that there's there's high potential for a company to enter it. But yeah. when a company comes out of the gate and they say we've got a product, we've got an opportunity, we've got market fit here, or what we see as market fit, we need to raise money. With that first raise, or maybe it's a second raise, a C or you know, a pre-seed or a seed raise, how do you raise enough money? to get yourself into the, the formula, so to speak, to be successful without crippling your cap table. Because if you look at it, how, or in essence, how, let's put it back to this. If I'm a founder and I go and raise money and I raise enough to get myself into, uh, into the formula, how do I protect my cap table down the road that when the company is, uh, is, is ultimately a world-class uh, company, that I actually still have some ownership in it. How does that work? Well, and this is where I started laughing one day when I, when I looked at some of the numbers and realized that something fundamental was happening in, in the market. Let's say you go out 
and you raise $2 million. What are you going to give away for $2 million? You're probably going to give away a quarter of your company. And what, what happens if you raise $20 million or $10 million? You're going to give away a quarter of your company. And it's really funny because investors are not paying for what you are now. They're paying for the growth that they're going to achieve in the future. So they're discounting that growth back and saying, well, with $20 million, you're going to go really far. You're going to go really well. So we're going to take a quarter of your company. And the reason you can see this is if you look at the, uh, the list of unicorns, is the, the, the number that I'm looking at is the ratio between valuation and total amount invested. And in the uh, unicorns, it's about an average of 5.5 times. So if you've raised $100 million, you're probably worth $550 million. Sorry, increase those numbers to make them unicorn size. Mm. And if you look at the bottom end of the unicorns, Versus the top end of the unicorns, the bottom end is at about a ratio of 4.5 and the top ones are at about 6.5 or something like that. I'm just doing this off the top of my head, so I might have the numbers slightly wrong. But effectively, they are paying for growth. And the more money they provide, the more growth they'll get and the more it'll be worth. So you don't actually ruin your cap table by raising more money. So so going in there, I mean, you... you, you, from an entrepreneurial perspective, when they're going in, they should look and say, okay... I'm going to give up a quarter of my company and I'm not going to take a million bucks to do it. I'm going to take 10. Otherwise, there's no point. Yeah, yeah totally. Now, here, here's what happens, which, which is really bedeviling, is that if you go in and raise the million or two million, you're going to get a lower growth rate, which means a lower valuation multiple in the end, which means who's going to get all the money? It's going to be the VCs because the valuation multiple is low and they have first rights of getting their money out. So it's so, you gotta have some you gotta have some stones to walk in and say to a VC, listen, here's my product. I need ten million bucks, especially when you yeah. don't have. So, but that's that's the but advice. It's happening all it's straight it's up. Just go in and ask for a big check. Don't come in small. Yeah, yeah. I did that once. I, I I I went and I know we we needed to Americanize uh, Synamics to be successful. And the way to do that, we needed, we were unable to acquire the type of talent we need in Canada, particularly in sales and marketing. So we decided to Americanize the company. And, uh, you know, I could have gone and raised $2 million. And what I did was I looked around and I said, what size of raise seems to be the most uh, palatable for the VCs given our stage of business? And um, mindful of the fact, this is like 20 years ago, I went and raised $12 million. Not that I to figure out I needed it. I just said, well, that's how much we're raising. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, part of it is understanding these dynamics is you, ha- you have to be in the right market to be able to do this. And if you're not, you're not going to get the interest. But if you're in the right market, there are plenty of people that will plunk $10 million in for the, first, for the first raise. You can see the stats out of the U.S. all the time. Gotcha. But people don't understand. This gets back to the, the, the numbers side of the market. And how you know that you're in a big market versus a small market, and what big markets are, and uh, you know a lot of a lot of people are starting in what are effectively small markets. And if you do that, you're never going to get the growth rate. You raise too much, you're going to get wiped out. If you're in a small market, you shouldn't raise anything. You should try and figure out how to how to build a business without capital. And and so you you can actually apply a formula, and I'm trying to do that now with regard to market size and how much you should raise. So that you don't get wiped out because, you know, along the way, 70% of VC finance companies get wiped out. Well, they were probably in the wrong markets with the wrong product market fit and, and all of those things didn't work out. But behind it all is if you grow slowly in a, in a uh, small market, because that's the nature, you're going to get wiped out from an investment perspective pretty quickly. Hmm. Yeah, you know, sometimes it's surprising to see some of these comp- or these companies that get venture financing. And yeah. I mean, they're effectively little applications, you know, like yeah. something like a, like a calendar app to, I'll send you my calendar link. And the thing takes a few million bucks, you know, takes down a few million bucks. What's, is there, from a VC side there and for companies that are more niche focused, who aren't looking to be that world class or really just aren't in a market to be world class, is there a formula there? Why would a VC bother investing in them? Well, that's a good question. I, and, uh, you know, I didn't look at the world this way when I was uh, dabbling in venture capital. 
Uh, so I, I, I can't bring myself back to that perspective. But you, you get it. And once again, you know, glossy pitch deck, uh, emotional connection, good, um, good team. And you sort of look, okay, they'll figure it out. Hmm. Uh, but, but so I think that's a lot of what's going on. And what a lot of people in think are big markets really aren't, um, because you've got these, oh yeah, Frost and Sullivan says it's a $12 billion market. Well, it's not, uh, you know, I've seen so many of those bad ones. So <laughs> there's a lot of bad math applied to how big the market is. And that's the biggest part of, of understanding the economics of what you're doing is understanding the dynamics of the market and, um, what's happening there. Hmm. Wow. It's, um, it's really interesting seeing, uh, the, this more formulaic approach. It's like putting the puzzle pieces in place. And I think yeah, it's, it's an algorithm for growth. It, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. As you say, I mean, that's, uh, um, it, it's such a powerful piece and I, and I really, I'm, I'm encouraged to see this work and, and, uh, I'm going to spread this far and wide because I think that, uh, really, entrepreneurs who are moving in or raising capital need to understand this before they even take their first check. Uh, otherwise, yeah. it's just yeah, it's just a, a nightmare waiting to happen. Yeah, there's a company I'm dealing with right now, and and about a, two years ago, I was still in the mindset of no, just raise as much capital as you can. Now I'm in the mindset of okay, this is too small a market opportunity. You've got to figure out a different way of raising money. And it may be with angels because angel, the, the angel dynamic is substantially different. And maybe this is the place for public venture capital where they're not expecting world-class uh, companies out of it, but we're expecting lar- uh, successful, slower-growing companies that mean something in the marketplace. Hmm. And maybe that's a niche that could be explored with less capital than these $20 million first-round financings. Um, but... You know, this company I was working with, eventually I said, no, I don't think you should raise any money. There's, here's how you could do it. And they're walking along that path now. And they've just done a product launch. They've raised nothing so far, uh, except from friends and family. And it's in the several hundred thousand dollar range to get them over into the product launch because they actually need to pay for product. And so they're, to- <coughs> they're attacking it differently. In the end, they will have a one product company that'll be really neat and will make good money but they won't have a world-class company. Yeah, that's right. Between between that and the world-class company is something I'm trying to figure out. What do you do if you're you're in a a good size market, but it's never enough to be world-class? Because if you get venture capital financing, you won't earn a return if uh, if you don't have a world-class market. You're basically postponing an exit of of perhaps zero value to yourself as the founders. To to yourself. The VCs might get some money back, but who knows? And, and, you know, this, as you said earlier, this isn't a subject that is talked about a lot. This, this idea of an algorithm for growth and the, and the dynamics of economics and finance and how it applies. And I think people need to apply more of this as one lens, uh, just another lens to what they're doing. Of course. Yeah. (laughs) Obviously I'm a finance geek because I get really excited about this. It's really cool. Well, so do I. Yeah. (laughs) But other people, their eyes glaze over and they go, Oh no. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. So let's, let's look at, um, I wanted to ask you a bit here because perhaps this is some really tangible advice because not every company is going to be that world-class billion-dollar status plus kind of thing. Uh, Not every entrepreneur wants to build a company to be that, but they still need capital to to grow. So what what advice do you have for for that entrepreneur or that company that is in a a niche or a market that isn't huge enough, but they need that money to grow? How should they go about raising capital? You you mentioned angels. Is there, uh, I mean, you've done corporate banking, um, so which that leads me to presumably perhaps debt and and different things like that. Uh, How should a company go about capitalizing themselves if they're not in this algorithm for growth? Well, um, first of all, you forget banks because they're not, you know, they won't lend you money until you don't need it. Mm. So, uh, you, you can forget those. I and you know, friends and family and angels are great. And if you can, if you can, because there's a there's a natural conflict between angels and VCs. And if you can exploit that by only bringing angels in and finding enough angels to fuel a business, and they're not looking for VC style 
returns, because an angel will be quite happy in 20 to 30% a year. VC is going to go out of business earning returns of, of um, that small on any one individual investment. Interesting. Uh, so, Can you just expand on that conflict there between the angels well, and the VCs? So, you know, um, VCs are in the business of throwing large money and getting large wins. And in the process of doing that, uh, you need as a VC to be able to re-up and, and bring uh, continually invest in a company in order to preserve your stake, your position. If you don't, you'll get diluted out potentially. It's the same problem that founders have. Uh, angels are more willing to accept a lower return in an individual company because they don't have the same portfolio effect that a VC has. So they're, they're more connected. Most angels don't have 20 investments. They might have five. They're looking at those not as high risk. They want moderate risk investments that are in good returns, not a few very high return rates. Hmm. So okay. you, get a, you get a return of 20% on an individual company. It's not going to be enough to make a VC's portfolio, but it will be for an angel. So there's some of the conflict. So, so in that, and what I'm hearing is that for the company that's not looking or doesn't have that market opportunity of being a, a world-class uh, multi-billion dollar organization, they should be looking towards angels and building angel relationships and and perhaps even completely disregarding venture capital relationships. Yeah, totally. Now, there's another one they should be going after, and it's customers. Uh, and when you look at large markets, there are um, the largest markets are in consumer markets. And the second largest best markets are in corporate markets, and then you get SMB markets. So let's ignore SM, small and medium-sized businesses for a while. If Can you're going you after consumer of companies that would be targeting those markets. Okay. Uber is going after consumer markets. Dropbox is going after corporate and small business markets. Oracle is corporate markets. Uh, you look at the, all the very biggest companies out there in the world of technology. Uh, Apple is a consumer market and corporate market and SMB market. Uh, Microsoft is consumer, corporate, and SMB. But the little companies like the, the people that are making uh, software for golf courses, they're making mar- they're in small and medium-sized business markets. Or yeah. the ones like Pal- Palantir is in a corporate market alone. Yeah. And when you look at the largest companies in the world, they serve all of consumer, corporate, and SMB. And then the next tier down serve just corporate and SMB because the largest markets are consumer. Yeah, but I just want to step back. If you look at somebody like Apple, they started with the consumer in mind, in essence. Or if you look at Microsoft, it was um, perhaps more consumer-facing right off the bat. Yeah, and look at all the biggest companies, and they're serving consumers. Yeah, yeah, okay. Except some are just corporate, but they're usually smaller than the hugest ones. Samsung, uh, you know, LG, all of these electronics companies, car companies, pharmaceutical companies. Look at all the world of spending in R&D and the biggest ones are serving consumer, consumer-based markets. Okay. And, and so Uber, we, uh, we work as, you know, everybody now they've moved up, but, um, sorry. Anyway, <laughs> where, yeah. where is it going? So let's say you, you, your question was, so where do you get financing? And, and the reason I wanted to separate is that depending on what you're going, if you're going after consumer markets, the answer is different than if you're going after corporate and SMB markets. If you're going after consumer markets, then things like Kickstarter are excellent ways of getting uh, funding for project and product development out of consumers. Tons of companies are using it now for product development. Hmm. Um, a, couple, a couple of the ones that I've worked with have done that very successfully and eventually went on to launch companies that, that grew and were profitable and didn't take venture capital. Because, there's a, because of the access to that medium, um, you will find your interested customer well in advance because they're the ones that are willing to plunk down money to get your product. And that's another of the factors is that you'll figure out how big your market is and your product market fit through a Kickstarter campaign hmm. because you'll know exactly who your market is by just going and mining data about the people that invested in put money into Kickstarter. Or, and you'll also find your product market fit to, uh, by understanding what the needs of the market are. Yeah. So you, you go after and you raise enough money to get your product to completion and into the marketplace, and then 
you might start and figure out how big this is and you know do i do angels or do i just find some way to finance the um orders from it because once you once you have a product in the marketplace and people are placing orders it's possible to get sales order financing and if you're selling it on time it's possible to get uh, you know factor your receivables or do you know something uh, in that way sell it to a leasing company if it's something you lease so there's all sorts of financing mechanisms once you've got a product on the market so you that's know, if you're after consumer sorry to interrupt sorry, you but i just this this really just hit me that it's it's the kind of thing where there's th- this kind of everybody wants to be with the cool kids being the vcs yeah but but damn it, man, like everybody should be taking a look somewhere else for their capital because the VC path is a very, very, um, how would you say it's, it's, uh, it's one shot, one kill kind of thing. And if you aren't that, yeah, it's not for everybody, not at all, not at all. And it's, it gets all of the attention, but all of these other paths to capital need to be explored, uh, for companies, uh, who, who don't have that, that huge consumer world-class fit. Yeah, I, 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 and this hit me a number of years ago. Is I, I looked around one day at all my friends, and a lot of them are entrepreneurs, and, and they've taken different paths, and a lot of them have gotten venture capital, and some of them haven't gotten any. And what I discovered was that the ones who hadn't gotten venture capital were personally better off financially than the ones who had as a, as a group. Hmm. And, and I sort of went, whoa, what's happening there? Well, that's part of the problem is I'm in Canada. And the Canadian venture capital industry had a negative rate of return. And if that's the case, then the entrepreneurs didn't do very well either. So the entrepreneurs that were successful are the ones that just built smaller, slower-growing companies, or at least tried to, and as a result, ended up with something 20 years later that had significant value. So mm-hmm. if, if, you really, if your objective is personal financial success, then stay away from venture capital. If it's to create a world-class company, then you need venture capital, and you can't do it without it. But I want to go back to your other question, which was, um, how do you do it if uh, without venture capital? And I said, for consumers, you use Kickstarter or something like that. In the corporate world, you get your customer to pay for it. And customers will pay. If there's something that they really need that is high value, you can do it on a custom basis for them, and they'll pay. Right. Uh, so uh, that's the old style. It's, it's what everybody knew in the 80s, how you develop a company for serving corporate markets. Well, You'd sell custom software, and eventually you do enough custom deals that they, you can package it all together and then sell it as a package. Yeah, and you've built, you effectively built and tested your software doing it. Yeah, and you know what your product market fit is like and who your target customer is. And it hasn't cost you a cent in terms of capital. Yeah. It's funny, you know, in, in this discussion, we're getting back to basics. We're getting back to yeah. how to actually build a company as opposed to just, you know, finance the hell out of it and hope it works. Yeah. Hmm. It's and there are ways <laughs> of, of, of figuring this out ahead of time. And now, because of the work that I've done, I can quickly look at a company and say, no, that's not going to work because of X, Y, and Z. Or let's say it has, maybe I should be typically absolute here. I shouldn't be. This is a low probability of success based upon these factors. Right. And you because know, I've looked at thousands and thousands of companies over the last few years to figure this stuff out. And, and when looking at that, perhaps, uh, can, you, can you give any, any examples or like telltale signs that you see that companies should be aware of? Well, um, first of all, it's, uh, you know, when you're looking at world-class, you've got to be in world-class markets. And so it has, should be consumer or corporate, not SMB. Second thing is that it should be horizontal, not vertical. So you're serving everybody, like all the consumers in the world, versus a single vertical. You can figure out how big a vertical is. The minute you start making very small verticals, your chance of becoming world-class is severely diminished. Same thing in corporate markets. The more verticalized your application is, the lower the chance of becoming world-class. But the third factor is one that people don't really look at. And and it, it causes the creation of a lot of of stuff that is logical but no one has a need for and is the question i ask people is what is your prospective customer not going to spend money on in order to spend money on your um Mm. your solution now if you look at at uber somebody can say well they're not going to spend money on taxis to spend money on uber and that's a logical transition 
But when you can't define what they're not going to spend money on, it means there really isn't a market now. There is a prospective market. Because, you know, if you're going in grocery shopping and you see a new bag of cookies there, uh, the, the, the people that created that bag of cookies know that you buy money, you spend money on other types of cookies. So they're just moving your purchase from one type of, type of cookie to another type of cookie. But if they invent a whole new thing for you to eat, you're not going to know what to do with that. You're not going to be able to shift in your mind your spending to this new thing. Mm. So this gets down to the creation of a company, which uh, I wrote a book on. The book's called Triggers and Barriers. And um, we started out trying to solve what is arguably the largest problem in business today, which is strategy execution. And I started it with a friend who was also a, uh, an entrepreneur who had another company and exited that. And together, we had both had difficulty making sure that the strategies we developed were well executed. So we created strategy execution software and a whole program around that. And along the way, you know, you do your background research and, and Harvard Business Review says that this is the number one problem in business today is strategy execution. So we created corporate solutions. So it's in the right marketplace. It's horizontal, not vertical solutions. So all of that was right. And we came along, introduced that and got absolutely nowhere. And the company is doing well now. Uh, on it's taken an offshoot of the software and it's producing something else that has market demand. But what we discovered when we went out to the market is that there was nobody for a bu- with a budget for the, what we were trying to sell. The stuff we were trying to sell would have improved their lives immensely, would improve the company immensely, but that's not how companies work. Companies work at the beginning of the year and they say, these are the things we need to accomplish. And they assign those things to people within the company. And they atal- allocate budgets to that and then they say, if you do this well, you're going to get a bonus. Mm. Well, along comes this new idea, and the, and the person sitting at the desk goes, well, that's not in my to-do list, and I won't get a bonus if I'm doing that, so I'm not going to buy it. So what you have to be able to do is to fit into that scheme, and that means they're already spending money on something, and you've got to move that something into your something. So that's when there's a market. So people say there's a market when there really isn't, because the market has to exist with spending now. And this mm. is a really complex thing to analyze. And it's understanding what triggers people to buy and what barriers exist against it. Uh, and that is a lot of what's created. You know, if you look at the stats, they're, you know, 40% of the companies that fail, fail because there's no market for what they're trying to sell. This is why there's no market. Mm-hmm. Nobody needs to buy what they're selling or nobody's currently buying uh, an alternative to it. And so triggers and barriers, this book came about because of the, the problem that you ran into with the yeah. strategy ex- execution software. Now, yeah, exactly. w- when you talk about strategy execution, and I know we're diverting from finance, and I know you and I have meandered all <laughs> over here. Um, yeah. I'm quite enjoying it. I hope you are as well. <laughs> oh, totally. Uh, is when we talk about strategy execution, what is that? I mean, we can look and we say we, we've got, hey, we've identified this market. We've got this, these personas. We're going to go and invest this in marketing and this in sales and on and on and on. We've got our business plan. Is the strategy execution ultimately the, the execution of that business plan where, where you're seeing companies fall over? Uh, yes. I mean, when you look typically at small companies, there's a chain of to-dos that all has to come together. If you take your large you know, companies divided into engineering and sales marketing and administration, and maybe operations, each of them has a job to do. Each person has to have their job tied to the original goals of the larger entity. And the better off you are at tying all individual goals together uh, into that chain that accomplishes the end result, the better off you're going to be and the better your your strategy will be executed. So the software we had created was the ability to chain all of those things together in a way that allows a, a company to know that the work being done every day by the lowest common denominator in the company is contributing to the overall result. So, so ultimately, really focusing all that energy in on the the end goals, on the the larger mission, yeah. vision, vision and mission. Yeah, you know, there's a, there's an old story that uh, there was a bunch of senators touring NASA one day, and one of them turned to someone who was sweeping the floor and asked them what he was doing there, and the answer was, "I'm helping put a man on the moon." Mm-hmm. Uh, the 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 floor cleaner could connect the work he or she was doing directly with the end result through that chain of execution. Yeah. But we do digress from finance there. 
yeah, yeah, I, I, we we did, but I mean that is that is a hell of a story, and it all does kind it all does tie into one aspect and an important aspect of financing your company. But uh, yeah, yeah, well, interesting. I'm, I'm trying to try with with the Narwhal project. I'm trying to create that chain of economics and finance all together yes. in the same way that strategy execution connects a chain uh, that leads from every individual to the end result of the corporation as a whole. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I hear you and I see that. And, you know, I, I want to be respectful of your time and just looking um, where we're at it, with the work you're doing with the Narwhal project and, and all your world or all your work in finance. Uh, what, what final thoughts would you have that would be instructive to entrepreneurs and CEOs who are financing their businesses? What, what should they be keeping in mind as they, uh, as they go through these pivotal events in their company? Um, I'd say do your research first. Uh, what I see is too many people wandering out and doing things without figuring it out, doing research in advance. And it starts all the way from the very beginning of who your customer is and, and how big that market is and what the customer needs are and your product market fit. And it extends to research done in the phase of, of unit economics. And all of that's necessary to create the platform for scaling. Because if you haven't gotten all of those things lined up, when you actually come to apply huge amounts of capital in order to scale, you'll fall down. Because scaling isn't just throwing capital at the, at the wall and hoping it'll stick. It's actually knowing what all of these things are. And that means you've done phenomenal amounts of research along the way. Highly, highly technical in many, many regards. And time-consuming um, uh, work in order to reach a point in time that you know that throwing money against the wall will actually work. Hmm. Okay. It, it's that research, and it brings us back to really our early part of this conversation about knowing those economics, knowing those unit economics, and actually being able to forecast them out and explain that, yeah. defend it, and then tie it into the to the strategy. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, and and a final question for you, Charles. Um, with the work you're doing, where can uh, the listeners follow uh, follow what you're up to? So you can uh, you can send me a note uh, if you want to join the mailing list, and you'll find my email address on the Narwhal Project, and it's narwhalproject.org. And because the name was only established recently, uh, you won't find it indexes very well in Google yet. So narwhalproject.org, and on the bottom, I think, of every page is my email address. Just send me an email, and I'll put you on a mailing list. And you'll see all of our past content, or most of it anyway, uh, sitting on that site, uh, links to all sorts of reports. And I've got new reports coming out eight times a year anyway, so you'll get lots of information. Yeah, I, I'm going to urge everyone to go there because I, uh, I, I really enjoyed it and got a lot of insights out of it. So uh, thanks for the work you do, and thanks for being on. Oh, it was great. Thanks for letting me have a chance to pontificate so for so long on this subject. <laughs> right on, Charles. Very much appreciated. Have a great one. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.